1: Hello and welcome to another edition of The Ruck, this one a bit of a throwback edition because Will Kelleher, Stephen Jones and I uh, this week are having to talk via Zoom which is very lockdown-esque but um, the, the the season climax as it is, I'm off to talk to Rono O'Gara later, Will's off to talk to, 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 to England in their camp and Steve is having toast and coffee in a flowery shirt, it is a Monday, not a busy day for, for the Sunday time Steve, how, how are you?
2: It's always a busy day. For time. I've got to do my whole whole week's planning. I've got to find a way to get to Marseille on the weekend. I've got to fit in a 14-hour celebration for Spurs, rightfully being in the European Cup. So it's a very busy, uh, busy day indeed. I can only give you 20
1: minutes. If, uh, if only, dear listener, you could see that Steve is wearing his party shirt down the Zoom. So he's already in celebration mode. I am de-
2: definitely, definitely. This I'm <laughs> sure it it's
1: called style, Alex. Uh, uh, you're right, getting to Marseille is not the easiest. You and I are taking the same route 24 hours apart, flying to Lyon and, and getting a train down, um, because there's no there's no way of getting there direct. It's Everything's booked up, which I guess we should be delighted with. At finals weekend in the south of France, and, and it seems to be the hot ticket.
2: It, it is a hot ticket. Just be, beware when you go into the buffet at uh, Marseille-Saint-Jacques station. Keep your wallet in your hand.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, we heard we had your reportage from, from yeah. France last week. Um, yeah. so, uh, Will, how are you doing?
3: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I had a, a watching brief over the weekend, lots of rugby, um, a couple of barbecues. Nice weather, wasn't it? Doesn't really feel like we've still got... Month and a half left of the season.
1: What were you making on your barbecue yesterday? Didn't it look very. Didn't it look much like a grill to me.
3: No, it was it was a paella. Actually, it a was very very. Paella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was an experiment, and it came off in spectacular fashion. So, thanks for your concern.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up on this week's pod, we'll look back on a well another rip roaring weekend of of the Gallagher Premiership as Northampton put themselves in, in the box seat to finish fourth. Jess Hayden will join us with her roundup of the Allianz Premier 15 semi-finals, which took place on Sunday. We'll look ahead to the Champions Cup final, Leinster and La Rochelle, and we will name our God or Goddess of the week. But first up, the Premiership. Right, gents, the Premiership. There's so much to talk about, even in a in a weekend where there were a lot of fixtures that, that meant very little um, because there's no relegation battle. We've just had Super Sunday in the Premier League, Championship Sunday, they call it, where there were storylines everywhere. The focus in, in the Gallagher Premiership is very much at the top, but it didn't, it, there was no shortage of drama. Um, and, and some and some great occasions. Harlequin's going back to Twickenham for the, the second time this season, fifty about 50,000 there for the big summer kickoff um steve what, what were your reflections what, what what did you notice from the weekend what, what stood out to you first of all um
2: how, how brilliant a, a match day experience it, it is becoming at some of these places um i believe it's it's the same at Harlequins. i went to saracens and um it is just a great experience every person welcomes you warmly there be it the car park attendant or the the media people um uh, it, it is set up uh, quite beautifully for people who love their rugby and people who don't even know rugby. There was a great atmosphere uh, and um, excellent game. And the stadium, with its new stand, is, is becoming um, uh, uh, ex- um, exciting and extended too. So um, uh, absolutely thoroughly enjoyable. Um, Billy polar I'd say, another nightmare game. It's clear... Um, that why he's not in the England team. Not. Uh, Billy is the number, best number eight England have and was again outstanding, as was Macle for Polar. But the thing of, I, I was left with, Alex, was very clear. I have been undecided as anyone about England's captaincy and England's number 10, uh, as of a lot of people. England in Australia must be captained from number 10 by Owen Farrell, the man is pure steel, pure consistency. He's got a fantastically rapid rugby brain, and it is about time they put him back to where he belongs.
1: There's there's a lot there to, to unpack. Um, let's just start with the occasions, Will, because it, it is one of the, the the areas that the Premiership has been has lagged behind in. I I believe uh, the matchday experience, making it um, an appointment for fans. It's something that Simon Massey Taylor, when he took over as chief executive, talked about. It's something that 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 CVC, when they invested in the league, wanted to to make a priority. And this season now, even away from the home games at, at Welford Road or, or or Allianz or or King's home, we've had three statement games. One at, at the Tottenham Stadium, two at Twickenham. I think the average attendance across those three is fifty-five thousand. Um, everyone who went to Twickenham on Saturday raved about the the, the family inclusive party atmosphere. That it was it was very very different to a Six Nations game and, and the sort of the the two hundred pound tickets and the corporate. There was there was a, a gig in the in the car park for an hour and a half after the game. Just the presentation of the sport at club level is is, is, um, is taking great strides, and and that's where they can surely attract so many new fans to come along.
3: Yeah, absolutely. My, um, my girlfriend and her mum actually went down to Twickenham to watch Quinns uh, against Gloucester on Saturday and they loved it. And they're normally Bath fans, but live around this way. So went along and don't support either team, but, they loved the occasion, loved the day, loved a bit of Craig David. I, just saw, I was watching it on the telly and you had the BT presenters, Craig Doyle, and Uga you dancing to some of the music when Lawrence Delalia wasn't that keen to get involved in all that. <laughs> but I th- yeah, I think rugby's got one of these, it's, it's a problem, isn't it? Where how much do you embrace fun when you're trying to make it a really serious sport and everything's really important and matters a lot? And the Six Nations has got, That side of it, where it's sort of fraught with danger, it's rivalries, it's all sort of vim and vigor and and that kind of sort of horrible nature of the sort of rival between nations. But there is a space in rugby also for being inclusive and allowing more people to come, making it a bit more of a day out, and actually not being that concerned that half the ground might not care about the result. Like Steve will have gone to the early days of the premiership where there was a couple of thousand people at all these games. And I was just looking for my Monday, Mall about some old games between uh, Harlequins and Leicester and stuff like that. And you look at some of the attendances and they're they're way down. I mean, Leicester had the most and they were about 12,000 at Welford Road back in the 90s. And now you've got 50,000 people going to a club game sold with a couple of months notice. And they also got seventy thousand. At the Christmas game, didn't they? For Seventy-five, almost. So it's an amazing change over the years, isn't it? And and yeah, why right. not embrace these new people coming to the
1: game? But Br- Bristol Bears, who've had a pretty dismal season, uh, averaged over seventeen thousand at home this season uh, at Ashton Gate. And and I, I I also think that where we've got to with rugby, Ben Earl was saying the other week he'd love it if each club had sort of a, one big occasion each season. It's not about the big occasion. I remember going to to Twickenham when Wasps. Took a game to Twickenham, the St George's Day game, as if playing it there was enough, and yeah. and they got a decent crowd, but it was empty in Twickenham terms. It, it it's about creating an occasion for fans, isn't it, Steve?
2: It, it causes, it but look, we can't compare football and rugby. But what, you know, yesterday, every almost every game was live. In um, every game, meant something in in, in the football. Um, it, it, and 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 the thing is with the, with, the, with the football you know exactly when it's coming along okay you know what week maybe it'll be Monday Tuesday Wednesday with the rugby you never know what's coming along when it's coming along B you never know if the players will be there I absolutely deplore the fact that after that game on Saturday those tired players Owen Farrell and Peel's on both sides had to go to an England training session this morning it's absolutely deplorable and in, uh, it'll never get up to how high we want it A, until um, uh, the, the match day experience as you guys say is, is bigger and B, until their top players are available more their own employees it's like going into Tesco's looking around from the employees and they've all gone
1: Ridiculous. I think, I think it's, it's important to say like Will, you said about your your friends who went, went and had a great day enjoyed Craig David one of my oldest mates took his two young kids and I asked how, how it was. And he said, oh, yeah, they love Craig David. They love the Mexican wave at the end. And I said, oh, so they loved it all apart from the rugby in the middle. And he said, no, that, that was almost a, as a given. That they loved that too, because the, the game was a a was was a, a, another kind of classic Harlequins back from the dead um, to beat Gloucester 28-24. And then straight afterwards, where, where you were, Steve, at Allianz, Saracens took firm control, took the foot off the gas and allowed... Northampton, who who, ne- who never gave up really, to come and score a few tries at the end to, to earn two losing bonuses, if you like a try bonus and a losing bonus, which puts them in pole position for the f- for the final round of the season, where there is a, a re- still a shootout for for the final semi-final spot, which is which is a testament for the, the quality of of the league.
2: It it, it might be Alex. It, it it might not be. One of the problems the league's got is that. I still think that there's only three really genuine contenders for the title. I think Northampton could play some great rugby, great attacking rugby. But I'm afraid that um, I don't know whether they've got sucked, sucked in or whether teams have got sucked in. But when um, um, teams like Northampton, and especially Gloucester of all people, when Gloucester go way ahead in a match against Harlequins, after the game, people say, oh, we all knew Coons would come back. That's absolute rubbish. Gloucester completely failed to defend a lead because they didn't know how to do it. Mm. Um, and, and one of the things is these days people have forgotten how to defend a lead. And I mean that in the old days for Leicester, if they'd been playing Quins, Quins would have not got a sniff. Uh, and 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 look, good good for Gloucester. One of my favourite teams. But I would feel miserably let down if I was a Gloucester supporter because they had the winning of the game and they allowed Prince to walk all over them.
1: I do agree that there is a a gap between the top three and and the rest, but I guess the point I'm making is that heading into the last few rounds, there's been a a, a race to try and nail that fourth which Northampton are currently ahead of, but Gloucester have had a shot at it. Exeter were in the mix um, until this weekend. So we've got, for the first time since... When is it, Will, five years, six years, Will, that, that Exeter have failed to make the, the last four?
3: Yeah, so 2015, they finished fifth. Um, And I was actually, yeah, looking at their f- basically failed attempt uh, this time. And they that was their 11th defeat of the season. They're currently in seventh. And they haven't lost that many matches in a premiership season since 2014, where they finished eighth. And they could end eighth, actually, because Wasps have got another game to play and Exeter are playing Quinns at home. You possibly batten to win that one on June the 4th. But Northampton, actually, it was funny. I was reading Stuart Barnes in The Times this morning. Um, and he his theme of the piece was about how Northampton just got blown away. And actually, I sort of was watching it from a different perspective and have done a bit on my Monday all about the way they um, grabbed back to losing bonus points and how crucial they are going to be for them so if they hadn't done that so there's a point where they were 42 17 down in that game with about 20 minutes to go uh and dan bigger just sort of wrestled control of the game and said right how are we going to find two tries out of this three tries it was in the end um and they got them one was a chip over the top to tommy freeman that uh, provided a try for tom james then there was Another one with a nice breakthrough, the middle that Bigger was and Alex Waller were a key part of that put James in again. And then for the last try, an unbelievable finish from Matt Proctor. Only bettered earlier in the day. <laughs> yeah. Did you get a good view of this, Steve,
2: Theo McFarland? I had to watch it on the big screen. No no one really knew what, what, what he'd done. And it looked like he'd actually not grounded it, but he just grounded it for a split second. Absolutely glorious, as you say, Will.
1: It was incredible, and actually, Steve, you've mentioned McFarlane on this pod before, as have I. He has been uh, one of the, the the breakthrough players of this season, and and Saracens who have have there have been two strands to Saracens in recent years: some big name expensive signings and a and a superb academy. But yeah, yeah. in but in the middle of it, they have they've recruited really smartly. Someone like Richard Barrington, who is now off to to Arjen, has been. The glue within that that place—not a celebrity player, not even a regular first-team player—but so important that the signing of Theo McFarland, de- Nick Kennedy identifying this athlete, this player from Major League Soccer, football, basketball international, bringing him in. One of the, you know, he, he I, I just think, if I was on the panel for for Breakthrough Player of the Year, which I'm not anymore, he would, um, he, he may well get my vote. He's been outstanding.
3: I actually am. We're voting on Tuesday. And I've just checked, and I think Theo McFarland's not eligible because I think there's a rule that they have to be 23 or under, and he's 26. But oh, he was remarkable. And he scored two tries, isn't he? And the other one was that charge down um, that bobbled around in the rugby paper. There was a still image of the Theo McFarland try where only the point of the ball is touching the line, yeah. and then he is above it, and it just looks unbelievable.
2: Alex, I, 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 just, just going back to um, what we're saying about crowds and attractions and, you know, a, a Bristol Bears in a poor season for them at 17,000 I mean, you know, I, I always say with the Premiership, and as Will has already hinted, you, you have to be there at the start to realise what's happening now you know um, and um, I, I do think that it, 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 if the marketing is correct, um, you, you know, you, you can get people in. Usually, I think you, you you can get a team or you can get a crowd then if the team's playing badly. But actually, with Bristol, they do, they do seem to have stuck by them through bad results. So rugby's marketing, I think, as we've all agreed, is very poor. Uh, and uh, it's about time that changed. And maybe a, a Premiership Rugby will will change it. But... Um, there's, there's got to be better marketing. And, and I think Bristol have shown what can be done uh, with decent marketing. By marketing, incidentally, I don't mean um, some tame um, semi-journalists trotting out stuff on the website, which only their readers are ever going to read and understand. It's got to be, marketing's got to reach out way beyond that to to the, the, the mass ranks of the uncommitted to get them in.
1: Premiership rugby has uh, have taken a battering on this pod dummy is and and deservedly so. But um, I would say that Steve, things are improving and changing. Right. Just, ta- just take that that Harlequins game as, as an example. There were fifty or thousand in in the stadium, but the game was also live on ITV. Miles Harrison's commentary, and at the end of it, he he throws forward to the Premiership final. If you've enjoyed this, come back and watch the Premiership final on ITV. That that's enormous, and that wasn't in place until January. And for, 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 that, for that game and that occasion to be on, on free-to-air television on a Saturday afternoon when people are craving live sport and, and there was no football, it was a perfect platformer, that, that's a real b- um, boon for the game if, um, to, to have that, that TV arrangement. i to
2: honest not I didn't realise that, and you're, you're dead right. I mean, with live TV, absolutely. So people then have, did go for the experience. Uh, I think that's tremendous. I think it's tremendous.
1: That we should we have to just touch on on the bottom of the of the league. We, we talked about championship Sunday in, in the football, Steve, and, and and scenes of Rafinha at Brentford after Le- you know celebrating the crowd after Leeds have 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 stayed up on the last day. There could be in a in a in different times exactly that same scenario uh, in, in the Gallagher Premiership final round of of the league season, Worcester against Bath. The two teams at the bottom of the table, winner would stay up, loser would go down. Except this season, no one goes down.
2: They won't, and a great day that is for the frightened protectionists, uh, Alex. Uh, The relegation um, um, matches, however, people, however much, whoever gets involved in the at the bottom, whether it's two clubs, three, four, sometimes it's six, it brings people in, it galvanizes uh, numbers. Galvanizes the TV, everyone's talking about it. It's agony and ecstasy. And the sooner it comes back, the better. Full stop.
3: Can you imagine the tension of that? Like, Bath fans going over to six ways, the winner stays up. Newcastle could get dragged into it too if there's some mad draw or something because they're only on 33 level with um Bath and having to go and play Northampton, who are ch- away, who are chasing the top four. It'd just be loads of intrigue on that. I mean, even just going through the results this weekend, there's, there's the odd game here and there, like Friday night, Wasp against Sale is sort of fine. It was okay. And there was a bit of drama with Jimmy Gopeth missing the penalty, but it doesn't, it didn't felt like that was really massively important
2: yeah.
3: that he missed the bar by 10 centimeters. Like it's all, he almost took a bonus point so that they could finish eighth. You're just like, mm, great. Okay. Yeah. But whereas the top four race, it's been really intriguing and the fact that Northampton since the Six Nations have been the form side I mean like the, the Dan bigger interview we had in the paper on Saturday some of the bits that didn't make it was him talking about there was a moment in the dressing room after Northampton lost to Gloucester in March where Chris Boyd just says right lads you've got to win every game now and they pretty much have yeah. whereas Gloucester and Exeter have dropped like a stone and all that has just been fascinating really intriguing and it's just a shame that we don't have that at other ends of the table. Quite right.
1: Steve mentioned uh, Owen Farrell earlier as, as his England captain and his England fly half. There are a few other players worthy of a name check in, in England context, all of which to come later on the ruck. And next, we'll be going in to talk about the Champions Cup final. But first, Jess Hayden brings us all up to date with the Allianz Premier 15 semi finals.
4: Exeter Chiefs are through to the final and have the chance to become the first ever team to win the Premier 15s double. Last month, the team won the inaugural Allianz Cup and will now face Saracens in the final on June the 3rd to see if they can become the first team other than Saracens or Harlequins to win the league. Bristol Bears had come from behind. 21 0 down to overtake Exeter in a closely fought match, but a 78th minute try from the Chiefs secured a 28 24 win and a place in that all important final. At the Stonex Stadium, Saracens beat last season's champions Harlequins 30 10 thanks to tries from Poppy Cleal, Miley Packer, and Mae Campbell. Now we must wait until Friday, the 3rd of June, to see if Exeter Chiefs can pull off the most remarkable rise in the top flight of women's rugby. The final will take place at Six Ways and will be broadcast live on BT Sports and across the BBC Sport networks.
1: Thanks to Jess for, for her roundup, Steve. Um, you watched both games at the weekend, both semi finals. Uh, what did you make of it?
2: As Jess was saying there, um, two great semi finals and uh, an ever-shifting pattern because Saracen's put Harlequins away uh, by a, a real a real thumping, and uh, which is, which has reversed some of the recent results. Saracen's looking really good. But the emerging teams, uh, Exeter and, uh, and, and Bristol, that was a tremendous game, could easily have gone either way. So let's, let's put it this way. The new guard are creeping up on the old guard to tap them on the shoulder, which is great.
1: Steve, it's actually really good to see you here there was a point last week we thought we thought you might never make it back on the pod after your your misadventures through France and and your your voice note of of, of panic after losing your your wallet. Are you sure you're ready to to head back to the continent again this weekend?
2: I'm ready to head back and I will be got um, uh, walking around with identical photographs <laughs> of uh, certain people. I'll be in the company of some very large gentlemen. And I can safely say I will get my wallet back by about midday on on Saturday. No, seriously, Marseille Saint-Jacques station. Don't go there on your own because not only does the pickpocket come and get your wallet, you don't even see him do it, and that's the fright. That's the frightening thing. But there we are. It's a it's a great place, and it'll be a great weekend. And that's not going to uh, that's not going to affect it. Your adventure last week.
1: Your last week, Steve, was was to go to to both Challenge Cup semi-finals one in Lyon, the other in Toulon on, on the same day. The two home teams won. There is a, a, a smattering of English interest in that Challenge Cup final. Joel Kapoku reigniting his career with, with Lyon and, and Kieran Brooks at, at Toulon. Um, you described really viscerally that your experience at, um, at, at, at the Toulon game. This final will be virtually a home game for them. Do you, would you imagine a, a whole stack of Toulon fans travelling along the coast to, to Marseille?
2: Yes, I can. I can. Um, I, it, they're, they're not very good travellers, the French, as we know, but I I, I think they will. It's, it's it's an easy journey and uh, easy train. And uh, the only thing I'd, I'd say is that, that Toulon was so good, was so up for that, that I, I just wonder whether they can raise themselves like that again. There's two decent sides there, not great sides, but the way Toulon played was certainly uh, up to uh, the, the European... Uh, Champions Cup standard this year on that night. So uh, it, it might be decent. It would be great if there's an English club in it, but I think that that would be a decent match. And, and too long I'll never, ever forget the way they played against Saris.
3: Alex, you just mentioned Joel Kapoku there. And I'm looking on my, is it famous yet? Or infamous, maybe? Spreadsheet. Number 113, Eddie Jones pick. Joel Kapoku, zero caps. <laughs> Remarkable story, though. That good on him for taking it upon himself to get that move, go over to France, and it looks like he's having a good time out there. And all power to him; he's still young, and he could well come back.
1: He also said he he had the choice of Bath or Lyon, and uh, I think we, uh, I think he's made the right call there.
2: <laughs> yeah, good shout, good shout there, Joel.
1: Lyon Toulon is a is is a tasty hors d'oeuvre for the main event, though, isn't it, Steve? Leinster Larocheel on on Saturday in Marseille. Leinster looked. Um, unbeatable when you saw them at, at, at Leicester Tigers. I, I saw their semi-final win against Toulouse and they were equally as, in, as impressive against mm. the, the defending champions. Up against the La Rochelle team who, who will be very smartly coached by Ron O'Gara and who boast enormous size. And, and one of the things that fascinates me about this game is is the power that La Rochelle will bring, which, which Leicester in the past have struggled with. Um, but the way they're playing at the moment, the pace at which they're playing, the recycling, the accuracy, the attacking options, that um, the, the different pictures they're throwing up, it, you'd think that would be, be too much for, for a heavyweight La Rochelle team, wouldn't you? How do you see this, this game unfolding?
2: I see it actually as uh, something on the verge of a- complete anxiety. I don't think La Rochelle... Uh, anywhere remotely good enough you, you you're quite right in saying what we know what they'll do with their forwards but i mean it's not Leicester tigers tried tried that people are saying that leinster and, and you know it's so nice to see them playing off the cuff and not a formulaic and them not being a formulaic team they're completely formulaic um and that's not criticism uh, but but it's very difficult to stop them and uh, I just go back to that awful final last year, where La Rochelle completely had a great t- chance to beat a, a poor t- Toulouse team, and 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 never played, never showed up. Let's hope they show up this time. And and the, first of all, they must get a, get ahead. They cannot allow um, as Leinster to play their patterns in the first few minutes to establish themselves, even if there's a couple of crunching tackles and there's, there's a yellow card or two. Um, but I, I just have this feeling, I'm sorry, with great respect to Leinster, it has been class-wise a really disappointing competition when you see the way that Racing played in the semi-final. It, they were just awful.
1: Well, one of the, the buzzwords during the Six Nations was cohesion. Um, talked about a lot with, with what France have, uh, have have built in their camp, what Ireland have, and what England are trying to achieve. When you look at Leinster, is that what sets them apart from everyone, that... I know that they're an international team, but when, when Steve talks about structure, what what they have is is an innate understanding of what they're trying to achieve, and every player knows what every other player is is trying to do. They, they, there's a harmony about the way they play, so that if Jamison Gibson Park is stuck at the bottom of the ruck, Tyger Furlong pops up and spins out a pass from the from the, the base w- without a split second delay. It just they just they, there's a um, a, a complete understanding of what it is they're trying to, mm-hmm. trying to achieve.
3: But in the URC on the weekends, they played Munster with a completely different team and smashed them 35-25. And it's the same patterns. It's the same system. It's just all substituting now, isn't it? I mean, there was a podcast at the BBC did a few weeks ago with Stuart Lancaster that was interesting from what we call a nausea point of view of the detail around how he does all this stuff. And one of the particular things he, he talked about was the fact that, as he said, someone like Tyg Furlong, his handling is so key. But then there's other players who can do similar things. I mean, someone like Josh van der Fleer this year has been incredible. I think he must be a shoe in for European Player of the Year. Mm. And he was up on a, a call last week, And am going to use it in the paper this week, um, talking about learning from Richie McCaw and going for certain breakdowns and not others and... He's just been an absolute force of nature and, and within that sort of great Leinster system. I mean, he's almost playing the role of Sean O'Brien in the past, isn't he? And it it seems like they're just plugging in all these different great Irish players into this sort of wider system that keeps adapting and is going to lead them to a fifth European Cup.
1: And and there are players who are improving as well. James Lowe, I had the pleasure, because I was there on, on a Saturday writing for, for the Monday paper, I could sit and watch players for five, six minutes, just follow them. And James Lowe was everywhere. And he was a player who 18 months ago, I thought was a decent finisher um, suspect defensively um, and wouldn't, wouldn't, and was rightly not on that Lions tour. didn't think he, he was, he was ready. Whereas someone like Hugo Keenan I thought should have been. Now you, you look at those two in that back, in that back three with um, Jimmy O'Brien, who is sort of one of their very few uh, non-international players, and they are sensationally good. And, James Lowe was everywhere he's, he's flicking around from the left wing to the right wing and making breaks enormous boots downfield clearance but, but accurate um, they are improving players as well they're not just a, a set test team uh, as you say Will that, that second string showed against Munster that, that there's depth there's not just a, a, an international team but there's, there's more to it than that
3: There's this constant sort of lament from everyone outside Ireland and outside Leinster that it's almost unfair that but- They're basically an international team playing in the European Cup. But maybe flip it on the other way. It's almost like when a driver dominates in Formula One or something like that, it's sort of everyone else's job to catch up. And whether they do that via coaching or anything else, then that's up to them. And the other point I was going to make, just on your Lions thing, it is fascinating, isn't it? Imagine they were picking a Lions team now. percentage of the the Lions that went in 21 would actually go this year. Not a lot, I'd say. Based on form and fitness and everything else, it's it's amazing how they're sliding doors, isn't it?
2: We're talking about Leinster. lads. it is. Um, people say they're lucky. Well, they are lucky in, in in a certain sense, but it must be really handy for the Irish selectors because gradually the whole the whole Irish team is is coming into Leinster colours. Where they are lucky is that in in their um, all they have to do in the in the URC is to qualify for the next one. That's all they have to do. And if, if you can take a second team to Munster and, and, and away and, and qualify and, and win easily, well, it is such a charmed life for Leinster because they don't have to do anything. And, and what it means is, is that the players are rested and ro- rearing to go for the big European games, maybe five or six a year. They're also rested for the Irish international games, whereas, for instance, the English players have got to batter their heads together for, uh, for for week in, week, week out. So it is a, it is an outrageous fortune for Leinster. I'm not saying they haven't earned, earned it, but it really is relatively easy to produce your best players when they're only playing one week in three.
3: I'll just add that it's not really Leinster's fault that everyone else is rubbish in that league. or well, Not Absolutely. rubbish, but and, 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 nowhere near them. And right. if, it, if they are the dominant side, it's, it's incumbent on everyone else to try and catch
2: up. Totally agree. Uh, it, you know, the, the, I always say that the, 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 the URC will be validated when the, 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 the other clubs force Johnny Sexton to play away in Wales and Italy and Scotland. He's played one game in Wales in his whole career, uh, apart from internationals. And until uh, everyone forces Leinster to field their top team, it will always be the same.
1: Assuming Steve and I get back successfully from, from France, we'll be, we'll be back on the pod next Monday to, to pick through the two European finals um, and to see whether our, our predictions of, of, of a Lens of victory are, are accurate. Now, coming up in, in the last part of the ruck, we'll have a look at the England squad, some of the players um, who are newly in it, some of the players who've shone this weekend, and we will finish with our God or Goddess of the week. England are holding one of their mini camps this week in, in Richmond, training at the, at the King's House School in in Chiswick. Steve, you've already said how objectionable you find it that the players have been been dragged into this camp. But you also made a, an interesting point about Owen Farrell. He hasn't been fit for England really this season. Um, there's a whole new leadership team now in place. And Marcus Smith has started the last what, eight, nine games at fly half. You think the number 10 jersey has to go to Owen Farrell for this summer tour and the captaincy too, even though there are, there is evidence that, that that would suggest he isn't necessarily the best man to lead the team. Why do you, why do you think that? Is it based on more than just what you saw at the weekend?
2: Well, first of all, a leadership group, I don't believe in appointing leadership groups. A leadership group is something which, which evolves organically in a team. You don't just say, oh, leadership group, you, you, and you, that, that's, depending on who shouted the loudest. That, I, I don't believe in that. Um, one of the things with Owen Farrell we've got to remember is that his star went on the wane before he was injured, Alex. But actually, that was because he wasn't playing well. He was playing badly. And as soon as you see him now, he's just so steely. hes He's got the whole thing in control. He is vastly underrated as an, as an inspirational fly-half, picking out the, the best runners uh, 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 and, and changing tactics, etc., and keeping moves going. And um, we're talking about international rugby now. We're not talking about se- sort of semi alequin touch rugby. We're talking about international rugby. And um, I-, I got this wrong. I thought Farrell was going to be struggling, but I would definitely have him in the squad as captain, probably at 10, maybe as long as Tulangi is fit, maybe at 12 alongside Tulangi. But uh, that guy has just got something. Um, he's he's morose
1: sometimes,
2: but he is expressive on the field.
1: He has been outstanding since he came since he got fit, hasn't he? Will?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it would be fascinating to know, wouldn't it, what he's done in the last few months? We're probably never going to find out because he's fairly reluctant to talk about these things. But um, I would be ama- I'd be really interested to know when he got that first ankle injury wasn't thinking he was going to be out for too long. And then he got the second one, what he actually did off the field because he, he, his vision looks like it's returned. He's putting people in gaps that he wasn't seeing before. And I don't quite know how you train your vision or whether just being fresh and not having the the stress and strain of all this rugby um, off his shoulders has helped.
1: I was at Southampton's games when he was injured and he was sitting alongside us in, in the press benches, which now half of those benches are taken over by the visiting coaching team. He was there with Joe Shaw and Mark McCall. Um, Jamie George has spoken about the value he brought as a as a sort of a de facto head coach, like a, a key member of the coaching team, as well as the playing staff. And just wonder whether that break that, like you say, that he's seen the, the game for four months through from a different perspective. Um, he's lost none of that competitive drive, none of that steal. But maybe that he he's brought an energy and a freshness and 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 just from from watching and studying games differently, he he may be seeing things that he hadn't seen before.
3: So since the Six Nations, I've spoken to two of the three British lines, British and Irish lines, fly halves from the tour, Finn Russell and Dan Bigger, and both of them have talked about post-lions fatigue mentally, and particularly as a fly half where you're not just responsible for your own game, but you're responsible for the game plan, everything from what kickoff you're going to kick to what are you going to do if you're three points down with 10 minutes to go, all that sort of stuff. And Finn Russell was the first one who spoke about it and said it weighed heavy on him. And when I brought it up with Dan Bigger, he said, yeah, look, I agree that he had his enforced break by getting sent off, (laughs) which he didn't want to do, obviously, but it gave him three weeks just away from the pressures, so he could just train. He didn't have to do the Saturday, which is actually the thing they enjoy the most. But the pressure of the Monday to Friday is the thing that weighs heavy. I mean, Bigger, I think, played his 25th match of the season on Saturday. And when we wrote the piece with Finn Russell, so before they got knocked out of Europe, I think I worked out that if they'd made the final of the the European Cup and um, the top 14, and he'd gone on tour, he would have been pushing 35 plus games in a season, which is just far too many when you had the Scottish... Uh, matches in there. And Owen Farrell's had a big break and he's coming in refreshed and and it's good for him. that like He's had 15 plus years of constant rugby, never really being injured. And so having a few months to just reset looks of, to have done in the world of good.
2: I think it's right. And it, just sitting on the side with the coaches looking on, that gives you a brilliant chance to reset. I think that's half of it. I think the other half is now Saracen's players have all come back together. It's the business end of the season with trophies to win. A lot of people don't like Saracens. And I think that is exactly what what has focused Farrell and his team. I don't think this Saracens team uh, can touch... They're great sides yet, although they're coming along with McFarland and all these guys. So I think they're a couple of players short in key positions. But I think now Farrell is saying, right, boys, you can imagine him, you know, this this let's stuff it up, then let's get back on the William Trail, let's win more silverware. And I think that's a perfect focus for him.
1: Eddie Jones w- w- was talking when he named that that squad last week of of the need for pace and power. Um England didn't really have a huge amount of pace in the in the back line during the Six Nations. They were missing missing back, back three players like Anthony Watson and Johnny May through injury. And they didn't have the power either because there was no Manu and there was no Cook and a Singer. And and Eddie Jones has, has talked about the need to harness both. Um, I just wondered, Steve, when you talk there about, about whether Farrell's a 10 or a 12, um, it's obvious that England need Manu Tulang alongside him. But then... Yes. You see the way that Joe Marchant played the yes. Harlequins at the weekend, outstanding. There, there were players in different roles um, who, who we can touch upon. Uh, Jack Willis, I thought, was outstanding uh, as well in a different way. Who are, are going to who going to make or are making a hell of a case before this Australia tour that they need to be in that starting team? Yeah,
2: definitely. I think I think that um, what you, I mean a, 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 a midfield of, of Farrell, Ten, Tulagi, and Marchant. Uh, Marcher can do a bit of both he 's a very very clever player and 's always been on the fringes. I think it 's about time he got a chance i 'm not knocking henry slade but i do, I do think that he 's got a great chance and and surely must play at least one of the tests in australia um, I, 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 as as for the rest, Jack Willis is always going to be slightly between uh, between styles, but as you say alex he 's just been Absolutely, remarkably good um, re- in coming back. It's wonderful to see him back. And now I think you've got what four, um, you've got four or five um, round pegs to stick into round holes, but that you can only get three in in the back row. So that's an interesting selection.
1: I think it's fascinating. I think just on your your Farrell point, I think we we should say that, as far as we understand it, England are planning to go to Australia with Marcus Smith at fly half and Owen Farrell at inside centre. And Manu Tuilangi outside centre, if if everyone is fit, the back row is a is a fascinating balance for me because Steve, you talked about Billy Vinopolo earlier. He's not in the setup. He's not in the frame as it stands. Alex Dombrandt is the is the number eight. Courtney Laws is is by his own vision a blindside flanker now, and by Eddie Jones' vision a blindside flanker. Yeah. And Tom Curry is a is a guaranteed selection whether he's wearing six or seven. But when you when you throw in a player like like Jack Willis, with his ability to disrupt on the floor to win turnovers, and and what impresses me the most, and uh, is that he he suffered the injury that Nick Dolly has just suffered, or we think very similar in a similar way, crocodile rolled up the side of a ruck when he had his when he was going in for for a, a, a turnover. And not only has he got his body right over the course of 50, 53 weeks out, Chad Willis, mm. not only has he got his body right, but there's nothing mentally holding him back from competing as ferociously over the ball as, as he was doing beforehand. And it started with his first appearance off the bench at Harlequins and he has not stopped. And the, when, when you when talk about going to play in Australia against a team that, that we know will want to play at pace, attack at pace, if you can throw in a player like Jack Willis alongside a Tom Curry um, to disrupt them on the floor, that could be hugely important, couldn't it, Will?
3: And I, I wonder whether could you get away with saying to Tom Curry this summer, you're going on the tour, you're a key part, but we're not going to play you in the test because we know what you can do. You've had a long year. We're talking about post lines fatigue. He'd hate it. But you give Jack Willis three tests and say, right, go on then, prove us that you've got the spot. And and in future then, you've then got two incredible options where you can look at the game plan before the match and say, right, what's the course this week? A bit like in cricket, but it's, is it a spinning pitch? Is it a hard wicket? Whatever. And you pick your back row based on who you're playing against. Because why, nice do, why theory, do you it's... need to say There's... it has to be Courtney Laws, it has to be Don Brun, it has to be Kerry every week? Because it depends what you're faced with, with the opposition, doesn't
1: it? Of course, it doesn't have to be, but there's no way England are not playing Tom Curry in those three tests. They've just sure, been a dismal yeah. six nations. Like Eddie Jones has to win that series. He's not yeah, he's not wresting Tom Curry from those test matches. I just think that the dynamic of, of, of its balance as, as as you just said, it's, it's you know, why does he like Courtney for his carrying and his line out? Why does he like Tom Curry because he he does everything so effectively? He's so he's an improving ball carrier. Defensively, he's brilliant. We haven't mentioned Sam Underhill. We haven't mentioned Ben Earl, who has been um, reborn as a player this season and, and isn't isn't currently in the, in the setup and, and doesn't look like he will be. Um, but the options in that battle are of creating that balance and, and having, I just think, I just think Jack will is throwing himself back into the mix with all he can offer. It gives England um, a whole other uh, layer of what they could what they could test Australia with, and I yeah you know, I don't I would imagine one that he'll probably be on the bench, but um, I just think it's it's a great story to see him back, and and he he offers so much to England.
2: I, I usually think that you should play your top team in every game in an international matches. One of the great objections I have got with Eddie is that, but when when they're so close together, I mean, look, Jack Willis, he's got to start a test match, I, and you know, Alex is saying starting three. I, I, I wouldn't put that beyond him either. He's certainly got to start one. But while they're there, it'd be nice to get Underhill back into true form. Because Underhill was a, was nearly a 10 out of 10 player in that famous semi-final a few years ago. Um, certainly got flankers there. I still don't think, I mean, I don't know whether I share this with Eddie. I think I do. I am not 100% sure that Alex Dombrant is international uh, especially on a fast track in Australia. And he's a great player, but I, I think that they have reservations about him. And I think that had Mercer stayed and, and not mistimed his departure to France, he might have been in there. Believe on a I don't think they, they're going to pick because uh, they just, you know, that would mean going back on, on something that they've done. But I think it's a fascinating area of selection, as you both, uh, as you both say. And I don't think we can say now who it's, who it's going to be. Uh, But, um, you know, let's be fair, they've got a real strong, powerful and multi-talented group to pick from.
3: Just the last point, going back to the midfield, I think it's quite an interesting... Summer for Henry Slade. If we're talking there about this this utopia that Eddie's had for ages of um, Marcus Smith at 10, Farrell at 12 and Toulang at 13. And then you've got Joe Marchant in brilliant form. Is Slade once again almost becoming this this sort of forgotten guy who's, that's how he started his career, isn't it? He sort of never really quite got there in terms of starting matches, then had a decent run on the side, has benefited quite a lot from Tuolangi not being fit. He wasn't in this squad the other day that was picked last week, but we understand that those senior guys are rested. But we have seen before that there've been plenty of players rested and then just sort of never really come back. I'm not saying that's going to happen to Slade, But it's going to be interesting. He maybe needs to add a layer to his game, possibly. Exeter haven't had the best season That He's never quite favoured loads of Exeter players in the past. I think they're the third picked side he's picked from, something like that, over his tenure, which is interesting. So, possibly an interesting summer for Slade and how he fits into this whole midfield conundrum too. The
1: the touring squad and captain will be named, uh, I think, the day after the England Barbarians game. So, basically the day after the season finishes and the day before England fly, fly down to Australia and they're likely to take about 36 players. Um, they're only they're playing three tests against the Wallabies. Ireland are going to New Zealand and, and playing three tests and two games against the Maori. Um, I asked Eddie Jones whether he had considered expanding his schedule and he, he pointed to the, the premiership regulations as, uh, as a reason why not. Um, so we'll, we'll have lots more of it. England chat to come over the summer. We'll be, We'll be podding from down under. Um, but for now, we, we should finish this episode with our weekly segment of uh, God or Goddess of Rugby. Um, sometimes we enter this point and no one's actually worked out who they're going to pick. Steve, have you got a thought? Yes, I
2: have. I have got a thought. And and I'm taking the carte blanche to make it the devil. And you could say it wasn't his fault his painter orders. has got to be Will Homer. <laughs> the England Sevens player who ran down the other end of the field, stood there for two minutes with utter horrible gamesmanship, without putting the score the, the, the ball down. He is in his uh, two minutes of infamy, he is joined by the Argentine team sevens coach, who refused to let his boys chase because they were 19-nil up. So he called his team back from chasing. And the hapless referee who stood there should have blown the whistle. And people say there's nothing he could have done. Yes, he could. You're not allowed to waste time on a rugby field. You're not allowed to delay the game. And you can penalise for doing something that is totally outside the spirit of the game. And that's what that was. And it was a weekend that will live in infamy for England sevens.
1: We, we, we should explain that the reason um, that both teams were, were happy to just stand there and not, not do anything for two minutes was because the score that, that that try created knocked Canada out of the Toulouse tournament and, and guaranteed that England and Argentina both qualified for the quarterfinals.
3: Um, I don't quite... I'm torn completely on this because it does look bad and it'll probably be a loophole that's closed quite soon. But... Is it just not an extension of the thing that we have in football? It was Gabriel Jesus was doing it for Man City, going to the corner and just wasting time, and you have that messing about for two minutes, like running the clock down. It's live open play. He's allowed to do that. The referee should have told him to speed up. He didn't. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's Will Homer's fault, as you were saying, but this I, I do sometimes think that rugby has a bit of a problem with trying to be on this sort of moral higher plane than other sports, and we need to remember that this is the sport of bloodgate of gouging of punching people in the face and getting away with it, and it doesn't necessarily hold itself to a higher moral standard than any other sport so
1: but it was an anomaly in the laws wasn't it Steve because um he could equally have told Argentina to compete argentina weren't weren't competing in, in either the,
2: in in the h s b c sevens a couple of, a couple of years ago. They told the players when you cross the line to put the ball down, and they did it. And um, this time they didn't. It would have been absolutely brilliant if he dropped it and knocked it on. Shall I go for my God? I'm going to go you for forgot. God. You're
1: going back. You're, you're seeing the positives. Yeah. Are you?
3: We mentioned it before earlier in the podcast, uh, but Theo McFarlane, that incredible finish. I, was, I did some sort of fag packet timing maths, and he ran 62 meters. In about eight and a half seconds. I reckon he was running at an average speed of about 16 miles an hour. Someone will tweet me and say I'm wrong. But ridiculous. And to finish it in the corner, say, there you go. He's my god of the week. And maybe one of the, the finds of the season, as Alex was saying earlier.
1: And I've probably I pre-previewed mine, but i only give mine to Jack Willis. Um, I just love watching him play Friday night. Uh I, I had the pleasure of working with him when he was writing it at his sort of recovery uh, rehab diary in the Times. So uh, very um, good. Um, and uh, so I've maybe because I followed his his rehab and his recovery fairly closely. Uh, it's just it's just great to see him back playing the way he can. So Jack Willis get, gets my my vote. Um, two gods and a devil um, for this week on on the Ruck. Everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Will. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back next week. Uh, looking off, looking over the, the European finals and ahead to the, the last round of the Gallagher Premiership season. Please uh, subscribe, like, follow, wherever you listen to your pods, uh, and we'll be back in a week.
4: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.